Well, good evening. I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Psalm 33 this evening. Psalm 33, there are notes that I prepared. They're on the back table there in the foyer if you failed to pick one up. I'd like to begin our study this evening by posing a question to you. It's a multiple choice question. The question is this. What is the greatest responsibility of the people of God toward God? Of the multiple choices that I will give you, what ought to be our relationship toward God? Here are your options. Fear God, obey God, love God, serve God, trust God, or worship God? Multiple choice question. What is the greatest responsibility of the people of God toward God? What ought to be the priority in our relationship with God and toward God? Fear God, obey God, love God, serve God, trust God, or worship God? You say, Pastor Matt, that's a trick question, right? Because it really ought to be all the above. The answer is all the above because you cannot do one without the other. Okay, but for our purposes this evening, I'm asking you to choose one. The single best or greatest of those options. Fear, obey, love, serve, trust, or worship, if you had to choose one. Is it that we must fear And obey God. Solomon said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is man's all. Fear and obey. Or is it that we must love God? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. What about serving God? The prophet Samuel told Israel, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. In Deuteronomy, Moses told Israel, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and serve him and hold fast to him. Okay, what if it were trust, trust God? Of course, Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your hearts. And then finally, worship God when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness Jesus answered and said to him, get, me behind, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so we have these options of fear, obey, love, serve, trust, and worship. You say, but pastor, the scriptures that you just referenced prove that there is more than one response in our responsibility toward the Lord. Okay, but again, for our purposes this this evening, if you had to only choose one, the Bible presents the doxology of God, the, the worship of God, the praise of God as God's priority and as man's primary responsibility. From creation to eternity, man has been made first for worship. Isaiah 43, 21, God says that he created us so that we might declare his praise. 
In Revelation 4, verse 11, all the creatures around the throne say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And over the centuries, the people of God have wrestled with the balance of these priorities and have come to understand that we exist for God's glory, to praise him and to worship him first and foremost above all else. And then the New Testament church has articulated that priority in its creeds and its confessions and its catechisms. For example, the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you're familiar with this. Question, what is the chief end of man? Is the chief end of man to fear, obey, love, serve, trust, or worship God? The chief end of man, according to that catechism, is to glorify God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20 tells us you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So it isn't just about man's creation. It's not just that we were created to worship or to praise or to glorify God, but also in redemption. Our salvation, Ephesians chapter 1, is to the praise of his glory. So God has created us. He has redeemed us so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. And this evening now, as we come to Psalm 33, I'm gonna submit that same priority to us. It calls us to worship. We are to praise the Lord. Let me pause for prayer, and then we'll unpack Psalm 33 together. God, I pray that you would help us in every way to fear you, obey you, love, serve, trust you. But God, even this evening as we come to you in prayer, we hallow your name. We are first uh, to worship you and to praise you and give you glory. I ask God that you would impress this truth upon us this evening as we study Psalm 33, for I prayed in Jesus' name, amen. You have Psalm 33 open before you. You will notice that Psalm 33 is not attributed to a specific author. Psalm 33 doesn't say a psalm of David. It doesn't say a psalm of Asaph. It doesn't say a psalm or a song of the sons of Korah. And Jewish tradition suggests that if a psalm does not have a named author, one can assume the authorship is the same as the previous psalm in the Psalter. If that's the case, this psalm is a psalm of David for Psalm 32 is named or attributed to David. You also note note that Psalm 33 has no designated title either. In fact, this is the first psalm since Psalm 10 that does not have a title in the Hebrew. Now, your English Bible may have a title that's been added by the English editors to give the reader a sense of the psalm, but there's no Hebrew title, no attribution of, a, of an author, as in David, and no title that's given. And, and so what I would suggest is that we take the absence of a named author and the absence of a given title as an opportunity to read Psalm 30 directly into Psalm 33 without interruption. Look at Psalm 32, verse 11, the last verse of Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in hearts. Rejoice in the Lord, Psalm 33, verse 1, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. And thematically, It's almost as if they belong together. It's almost as if the compiler of the Psalter put these together. 
The one who is blessed in Psalm 32, you'll remember our, our previous study. The one who is forgiven in Psalm 32, the righteous one in Psalm 32 is now the one who's called upon to rejoice in the Lord and praise him. Let's look at Psalm 33, verse number one again. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. The introduction of Psalm 33 here now, number one, the introduction in your notes is simply praise God. Praise God, and Charles Spurgeon has said this, it's copied for you there in the back of your notes, to rejoice in temporal comforts is dangerous because you might lose them. To rejoice in self is foolish. To rejoice in sin is fatal, but to rejoice in God is heavenly. Take away the Christian's power of praising God and you make him a poor earthworm bound here with doubts and fears and cares, but let him but kindle in his soul the flame that burns in, in heaven of uh, seraphic love to God. That, that's the, the characteristic of the seraphim, the, the heavenly beings, and away he mounts. And so here we're called, we're compelled to, to rejoice and to praise God with melody, with musical instruments, and with our mouths. First letter A, with melody in verse number two. That is, add a tune to your words of praise. Why? Because why say it when you can sing it? I think is what the psalmist is saying. Okay, then, if the point is melody, there in verse number two, it's translated music, I think, in the NIV or praises in the New American Standard, melody here in my New King James, to suggest that we praise God with melody, does that mean there is to be no harmony? Is the point of melody to say that there should be no rhythm? What about syncopation? Do Gregorian chants have enough melody <laughs> to qualify as a song or as music or as praise. Don't overthink this. I, th I think the point is the richest expressions of man's heart occur in song. And for that reason, we, we sing God's praise with melody. Letter B, with musical instruments. There in verses two and three, with musical instruments. Now, is the psalmist's point of naming the harp or, or lyre or stringed instrument to suggest that we shouldn't have brass instruments or woodwinds or percussion? I don't think so. I think there's room for many musical instruments. Do you know how many musical instruments are cited in the Bible? There are no less than, than a dozen. Some of them are, are these. The shofar is the ram's horn. Cymbals, bells, wooden clappers, trumpets, tambourines, timbrel. A timbrel is, is a type of a percussion instrument, maybe a drum. Pipes, probably not a pipe organ, but some form of a, of a woodwind perhaps. Lyre and harp are stringed instruments, flutes. So I would say this to us. Let's be careful in our personal preferences regarding instrumentation to not restrict or restrain unnecessarily our worship and praise to only a piano and an organ. I'm, I'm so grateful for the, the plurality of dif different instruments that can accompany our, our singing. And so with melody, with musical instruments, letter C, this is the big one, and, and, and I want to highlight this. Most of all, letter C, we praise God with our mouths. We need to have big mouths that sing or shout our praise to the Lord. Verse number three. 
And whatever might be said of the praise and worship and music at Fourth Baptist, may it be said that we are a congregation that sings with our mouths, with or without instrumentation, with melody and harmony and rhythm. And if we are to, to ever be known for our music, let it be for the corporate voice of praise that we offer to the Lord. It's for that reason that we spend nearly half of our services singing. It's exhausting sometimes. Like, Pastor Dan, are you kidding me? All the verses of that hymn while we're standing? Enough already. No, not enough already, because this is in fact what we do together as the people of God with our mouths singing and praising God. All right, now verse number three, you notice it there. It says that our praise should be a new song. What is that? Does that mean that something copywritten and published in the last 10 years is a new song? Does that mean that an old hymn put to, old hymn text put to a new tune? Maybe that's a new song? James Montgomery Boyce says a new song means that every praise song should emerge from a fresh awareness of God's grace. How about that? A new song is that every praise song should emerge from a fresh awareness of God's grace. So if we sing the oldest hymn in our hymnal, anybody know what it is? I think it's A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther, circa 1520, maybe, right? You can look it up. Or if we sing a new song, new hymn, that we don't even know, like perhaps one even yet this, e- this evening. We sing it with a fresh awareness of God's grace. That's a new song. The new song is merely a fresh response of praise and thanks, one that matches the freshness of God's goodness in our lives and his goodness and his mercy, which are new every morning. And because his mercy is new every morning, we can sing an old hymn as a new song. And there is one new song that has been sung for generations of believers from every tribe, language, people, and nation before the throne of God in heaven. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That's a new song. It's an old song, but yet it's a a new song. Look at verses four and five. For the word of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. I'm gonna suggest number two, praise God for his person. Number two, praise God for his person. And when we praise the person of God, we can do it in two ways. First letter A, God's worth. God's worth. In verses four and five, the psalmist gives us details about the worth of God's person. Notice the adjectives. Look at verses four and five. The the Lord's word is right or it's upright. What he does is truth. What he loves is righteous or just. He is good. We have right, upright, truth, righteous, just, and and good. And this is God's worth. This is who God is, his person. When I was in Bible college, I remember an assignment that Dr. Les Ola gave to all of us as incoming freshmen. And the assignment was this. He said to us, during your years in Bible college, 
I want you, freshman class, to build a biography of God. He said to us, we're 18 years old, right? We're barely out of high school. He says, I want you to build a biography of God. I want, here's the assignment. Get a journal and record the attributes and the character of God as you discover them in your reading and and the study of the scripture. And the idea is that as we were going through the course of our personal devotion time, perhaps listening to preaching, perhaps in a Bible class, that as we were learning of God as he's revealed himself to us in the scripture, we would be creating a list of his character and his attributes. We would be drafting a biography of God with scripture reference. Of course, now you can simply Google attributes of God, right, or characters of God, and in seconds you can have uh, a list. But it's so much better to personally encounter God in the scripture, to personally experience communion with him in the scripture over the course of your life experience. It is then that our praise for his worth will be most sincere, and it will be fresh. It will be a new song because you discovered his person in his his word. So if God's worth is cited in verses four and five, then I submit that his works are cited in verses six to nine. That's letter B, God's works. As we praise God for his person, his worth, his works, the first big work that God did, of course, was his work of creation. Look at verse number six. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Let there be. And God created the world, his his works. And I, I don't know that I need to belabor this point other than to restate that God's creation of all that is ought to be the primary point of our biblical world view. In the beginning, God created, and that creation declares the glory of God, this doxological priority of praise and worship. Everything flows from our worship of God as creator. You go to Psalm 1, of course, and read of the lowest point of man's depravity. It comes after man rejects God and his work of creation. Now, Here's, here's the, the thing. Praising God for who he is, that was subpoint letter A, his worth, and for what he has done, subpoint letter B, his works, is a bit abstract to us. It's like going to a museum. Do you like to go to a museum and, and learn about the great figures from history? Oh, we, ad- we admire their work, but if their work has never touched our lives, It's hard to get overly excited about a crusty, dusty, old museum. On the other hand, if we have seen and we have heard and we have experienced God, it's so much easier to get excited in our praise and our worship of God. Think about your personal conversion story. He saved you. We've been born again. We sang, chosen as his children. Think about answered prayer. You say, but see, Pastor, that's the problem. I'm not sure of my conversion. Or I don't remember the last time he answered one of my prayers. Think about his blessings to you. 
Well, see, Pastor, that's the problem. I, I, just, I just can't think of how God has blessed me. Then no wonder it's hard to praise and to worship. And our praise ought to be that which grows out of a current, real-time experience of God's worth and his works in our lives. And I think that's where the psalmist goes next, number three. We praise God for his providence. His providence. You say, well, what is God's providence? Well, let me answer that question both linguistically and theologically. Linguistically, the etymology of the word providence comes from the word provide. has two parts. The Latin pro means toward or forward, and vide, or vide, Latin, means to see. Toward, forward, to see. Provide, providence. The closest thing to the Latin word in our English language would be the the English word provision. So when we speak of God's providence, we could speak of God's provision. Because of God's pro, forward, toward, to see vision, he provides what is needed, his providential acts. In the vernacular, we might say something like this. We say, I'll see to it. What do we mean when we assure someone, I'll see to it? What we're saying to them is, I will provide for whatever needs to be done. I'll take care of it. I'll see to it. Provision. And this is how God's providence isn't just a linguistic matter. It's a theological matter. For God foresees what is needed. He provides what is needed to accomplish his purposes and fulfill his will. And so God's providence in our lives is his complete care of and control of the affairs of man because he sees what needs to be done. He doesn't dismiss human responsibility. That's not what I'm suggesting. But he he doesn't destroy our human activity, but he accomplishes his will in spite of those things. A classic example of the providence of God in the affairs of man would be in the life of Joseph. His brothers meant evil against him. That was a bitter pill for Joseph to swallow, but God meant it for good. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. This is God's providence here. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, verse 10. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Let me read the same in the New American Standard. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Allow me to read verses 10 and 11 again in the New International Version. The NIV, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart throughout all generations. I would give you subpoint letter A. God plans for God's plans for the nations. God's plans for the nations. The story is told of a a newly elected politician who had just arrived in Washington, D.C. He was visiting the home of one of the ranking senators. And the two men stood looking out over the Potomac River as an old rotten log floated by. The older senator said, this city is like that log out there. How's that, asked the younger man. The older senator replied, well, there are probably hundreds of bugs and ants and other critters on that old log as it floats down the river. And I imagine that every one of them thinks that he's steering the log. 
But in fact, nobody's on the log is steering the log. And so as we think of the nations and governments, we think of current events, we think of the activity of governments, it's chaotic, it's corrupt, it's anti-Christ, and, and we feel impotent regarding those events and those happenings. We can vote, we can call and write our elected officials, there's definitely a place for that. I'm so grateful for Christians who advocate for the right in the halls of government, but many times we feel like we are the crawling critters on that old floating log in the Potomac River. We have no control over what is happening. Do you feel like that? I talked to Colleen Tronson just this past week. She felt like that. They labored so hard in the Minnesota State House and the Senate regarding the abortion bill, but alas, that those things were passed, removing all restrictions from abortion. And, and the only thing we can fall back on is the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, knowing that God is ultimately in control. And we must conclude per biblical text that God's purposes and plans will prevail, that he will providentially work his will his way. So that when I hear of a new executive policy that was signed into to law or new legislation that is passed or an election that is lost, I anchor myself to the truth that God is doing something. And so I can yet praise him. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Of course, this is specifically a, a reference to Israel in this context, but, but it can extend to any nation whose God is Yahweh. So how does God exercise his providence over the nations? Remember, it's because he sees what is going on. His provision, he will provide his providence. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. This is God's view of the nation. God's plans for the nations, let it be God's view of, it should be, you can correct the typo there, God's view of the nations. When God looks down on the nations... He sees ahead. Provision. He provides his providence. But he isn't just dealing with geopolitical nation states, but with individuals, the government officials and citizens. And this is what he sees in verse 16. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. This is what God sees. This is where he's looking, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. What does God see? He sees man's salvation there in verse 16. He sees safety, verse 17. He sees deliverance in verse 16 and 17. It, it doesn't come from the strength of one's nation. The United States of America has the strongest military machine in the world. We are the richest nation in the world. That makes us the greatest nation in the world. But yet we can't solve man's problems, can we? Rather, God sees those who fear him in verse 18 and hope in his mercy, verse 19. Because of what God sees, he provides what is needed. That is God's providence. Praise God for his providence in our lives. We praise God 
with melody, with musical instruments, with our mouths. We praise God for his person, his worth, his works. We praise God for his providence, his plans for the nations, his view of the nations. So what does our praise do? Does it simply fill a half an hour of a Sunday service? We acknowledge who God is, what he's done. What, we, we make music about it, but, but is there anything that is accomplished among us or within us by our praise and our worship? Verse number 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. The conclusion of this psalm, number four, hope in God. Hope in God. Now, I've copied an extended um, portion of what Warren Wearsby has written. And, you know, many times as I'm reading books and I'm studying and preparing, I, I get discouraged because I feel like I can't say it any better than the books have said it, right? So I, I give you what the books have, have written, what they've said. Here's what Warren Wearsby says. He says, these words may have been expressed by the congregation and choir as the song came to an end. He's, he's referencing verses 20 to 22, the end of the psalm. A confession of faith in the living God. Because they have worshipped the Lord. You can underscore that. Because they have worshipped the Lord, they had peace in their hearts and could quietly wait for him to work. Their hope had been strengthened, and they looked expectantly for him to accomplish his purposes in them, through them, for them. They had confidence in the Lord that he would send help when they needed it. You see, as they were singing, as they were praising in their worship, of who God is and what he has done, his providence over the nations and in their lives. Worship should not only strengthen our inner peace and power, increase our hope and give us greater confidence in the, world, in the Lord, but it should also increase our joy. The psalm begins and ends with this, the theme of joy. Along with that blessing, we find our faith strengthened as we behold the beauty and glory of the Lord in our worship. Let your unfailing love surround us is the closing prayer. That's the New Living Translation. So we have the three great Christian virtues brought together, faith, hope, and love. It isn't enough to leave the place of worship simply feeling good because feelings are temporary and sometimes deceptive. If we find ourselves loving God and his people more, having greater faith and hope in the Lord, and going forth into the battle of life with greater confidence and joy, then our worship has accomplished what God wanted it to accomplish. So folks, I submit to you pastorally, when we gather together corporately in this place and we sing old hymns or new hymns, when with freshness we sing of God's grace in our lives and we corporately worship together, we go from this place with greater confidence in the one of whom we've been praising and worshiping. At times people say, Pastor, I, just, I feel lethargic in my Christian life. The Bible's a blur. My prayers bounce off the ceiling. I feel like God is a million miles away. I, I just, it's hard to get excited. And you know what you need to do? You need to come and praise the Lord. Maybe you need to build your own biography of God. Get a journal 
And as you discover God in, in the word, you're, you're writing down his attributes and his character. And as he's answering prayer and blessing you and you witness his providence in your life, you can find yourself rejoicing with praise. Because at the end of the day, fear him, love him, serve him, obey him. Worship is most important. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for how your spirit has instructed us through it. I pray, God, that you would help us to be people of praise and worship. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.